Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 23 of the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host, Simon Skidmore. In this series, we've been working our way through John's Gospel. The last episode considered Jesus' last meal with his disciples and his betrayal by Judas Iscariot in chapter 13. Throughout John's Gospel, Jesus is presented as the light of the world who shines God's creative wisdom into the darkness. But Jesus has been telling us he'll only be with us for a short time. And now we're told that it's time for him to depart And as the light is removed, the time of darkness has dawned. So Jesus wants to prepare his disciples for this time of darkness. And we pick up the story today in John chapter 14, where Jesus gives his disciples a farewell speech. So let's read together from chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it'll be enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his own works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else on account of the works themselves. Jesus tells his disciples not to be troubled. And I'll return to this idea later, but for now, Let's just note that Jesus is encouraging his disciples to remain steadfast in their faith in the midst of the trials which await them. Jesus' disciples will be tempted to leave their faith aside, but Jesus encourages them to stay the course. Jesus also tells his disciples that in his father's house there are many rooms. What is Jesus saying here? Is he telling the disciples that they'll live in a big mansion together, each of them in their own rooms? Because of course, this is their vision. They want to rule the world. They want to be rich and powerful. Of course, they're envisaging a big mansion with rooms that they're all going to dwell in. Will they have their own personal ensuite? Unfortunately, the English translation of these verses tends to support these sentiments. But the word translated rooms in verse 2 is probably better translated as a dwelling place. We've seen this idea of where Jesus dwells throughout John's gospel. In the first chapter, when John's disciples ask Jesus where he is dwelling, Jesus replies, come and see. We saw in chapter four of John's gospel that Jesus dwells with the poor and marginalized and those who the prevailing social political order has cast out. We saw him stay with the Samaritans in the village and he dwelt with them. And 
that's when they realize that this guy is the Messiah because he goes to the people who are lost and rejected by the prevailing order. Now, Jesus extends to his disciples an invitation to do likewise. Jesus tells his disciples that he is going to prepare a place for them to which he will bring them later on. Jesus will repair this place through his death on the cross. As I mentioned in the last podcast, Jesus' death marked an important moment for the disciples. This event forced them to lay aside their aspirations of political dominance and get off the mimetic treadmill. Only then are their eyes open to the mimetic games in which they are trapped. They need to have a similar experience to the blind man we met in John chapter 9, whose eyes were open in the midst of persecution from the religious leaders. Seeing Jesus' persecution, and as they are persecuted for the first time, Jesus' disciples begin to see the scapegoat mechanism for what it is. This awakening is the place which Jesus is preparing for his disciples through his death. Once the disciples go through this process of seeing Jesus on the cross, of grieving, of being outcast, of being persecuted, their eyes are opened and there will be many places for them to dwell because there are many people who are poor and marginalized. Once they realize that this is what Jesus is all about, this is where Jesus dwells, then the disciples will go and do likewise. They can't do that now because they're currently stuck on the mimetic treadmill. But once they hop off and once their eyes are open and they understand that Jesus dwells on the margins with the poor and marginalized, then all of a sudden he has prepared a new place for them, many places for them to dwell. So this is the spiritual meaning of Jesus's words. This is what Jesus means in a spiritual sense, I am going to prepare a place for you. But Thomas misses the point. Along with many others throughout church history, he interprets Jesus's words in a physical sense and he totally misses the point that Jesus is trying to make. Jesus tells Thomas that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And I think what's going on here is Hebrew parallelism. Jesus is not saying, I am three different things. I am the way, the truth, and the life. But he's actually describing one reality as viewed from three different angles. When Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life, it's more like saying he's the true living way. He is the way of truth, which exposes the lie of mimetic rivalry. And that way, that truth leads to true life. That is the life of the Messianic age. Jesus also uses this exclusive sounding claim. No one comes to the Father except through me. And while this comment has been interpreted in various ways throughout history, I want to look at this statement from a mimetic perspective. If they want to experience God, the disciples must imitate Jesus by laying aside their aspirations of political power and domination. They must step off the mimetic treadmill. 
This active imitation is what Jesus means when he calls himself the true living way, which will lead the disciples to experience God's presence. But at this stage, the disciples just simply cannot grasp this truth because they are blinded by mimetic processes. For this reason, they do not realize that they have been seeing God's character displayed in the person of Jesus all along. Philip demonstrates this ignorance when he asks Jesus to show him the Father. And Jesus tells him that God is in him, that Jesus himself is one with the Father. You see, the disciples think that they have to strain and strive to reach God's presence. But God has been among them all this time. They were just too blind to see it. They thought that they had to be monastic. They had to go up on a mountain. They had to pray and fast and read and seek and flagellate themselves so that they could experience God's presence. But the irony of it is that all the time God was dwelling in their midst and they never knew it. Jesus directs his disciples to the signs which he has performed in the hope that they'll realize that these signs testify to Jesus' intimate relationship with God the Father. But the disciples still seem unable to realize what's going on. Let's read on now from verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither knows him nor sees him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live, and you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, but the other one, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the rest of the world? Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to me and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. 
If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it happens, so that when it takes place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Arise, let us go from here. So Jesus promises disciples that even though he is leaving them, God will empower them to continue in their faith, doing even greater works than they saw Jesus do. This is yet another example of Jesus resisting the temptation to find his identity in the kudos and respect he receives from his disciples. The guru often speaks in riddles and mysterious language so that their students never truly understand, yet remain in awe of their teacher. In this way, the students remain perpetually dependent on their guru and they never reach a point of maturity when they can graduate and embark on their own journey. This allows the guru to retain their students which feed their identity as a spiritual expert. But Jesus does not succumb to this temptation. Jesus tells his disciples that they have seen God for themselves and that they no longer require his teaching. He encourages them to embark on their journeys by assuring them that God will empower them along the way, equipping them with whatever they need. At the moment, his disciples are afraid, they're scared, they're daunted. They don't know what they're going to do. They can't imagine how they're going to survive without Jesus's teaching. And this is why Jesus says, don't worry. The spirit of truth, this Holy Spirit will guide you and empower you. By doing this, Jesus says, the Father is glorified. That is, when the disciples imitate Jesus, they continue his work and God's true nature is being revealed through them, just as it was through Jesus. Although they may feel that they have been abandoned, Jesus assures them that they are not alone. When they feel lost and helpless, they can trust that God will guide them home through the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth is the opposite of the lie. The spirit of truth exposes the lie of mimetic rivalry. This spirit teaches the disciples everything they need to know and reminds them of Jesus' teaching and comforts and guides them after Jesus' departure. In short, the spirit of truth replaces Jesus as the disciples' teacher. They've graduated from his tutelage and now their guidance will be this spirit of truth, this spirit of wisdom. The very real danger following Jesus' departure is that his disciples will seek to replace him with another spiritual guru. But Jesus cannot be replaced because according to John, he is this unique son of God. Everyone else is entangled in mimetic rivalry. We've seen this play out in the other teachers of Jesus' day. These teachers engage in mimetic rivalry with each other and their students as they seek to solidify their identity as religious gurus. For this reason, any other teacher will simply lead the disciples back into mimetic rivalry with others. The spirit of truth, however, is going to lead them in another direction. He is going to liberate them from mimetic rivalry. 
So the disciples don't need to follow another teacher after Jesus' death. In fact, following another teacher would be counterproductive. Their job is now to continue Jesus' work, resisting and exposing the forces of mimetic rivalry and teaching others to do likewise. Now, Jesus tells us the world cannot receive this spirit of truth because it neither sees it nor knows it. The reason the people neither see nor know the spirit of truth is because they are blinded by mimetic rivalry. This is the reason why they cannot see that Jesus shows the glory of God, that he demonstrates God's true character because they are blinded by mimetic rivalry. Jesus' disciples, on the other hand, know the Spirit and it abides with them, just as it did with Jesus. When the disciples receive the Spirit of Truth, their eyes are opened and they will realize Jesus' intimate relationship with them and with God the Father. Jesus says, I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. We'll talk more about this in the next chapter because Jesus brings more imagery to talk about what this means. But for now, let's say that the disciples have had this intimacy the whole time, but the disciples cannot see it because they are blinded by mimetic rivalry. In other words, the Spirit has been there. Jesus has been there. They have been seeing the Father the whole time, but they've been blind to it. Thomas is concerned about how he's going to get to God, but God has been dwelling with him the whole time. In this passage, Jesus assures his disciples that God the Father will always abide with them, comfort them, and empower them. Jesus continues, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, It is he who loves me, and whoever loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Let me just flesh out a little bit. This word commandments sounds like a directive, an order. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'll love you if you do what I say. But that's not quite what's going on here. We need to look at this from a bit more of a Jewish angle, because Jesus was a Jew and so was his disciples. So let's talk about this. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them. It's like saying whoever follows the guidelines that I have laid down for you. Commandments in the Jewish tradition are God's wisdom by which you walk in. You keep them. You guard them diligently. And these commandments make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. They're rules, laws by which to live by. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them diligently, that is how I'll know that they love me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and manifest myself to him. In other words, Jesus will manifest himself in the sense that they will experience God if they walk diligently in Jesus's commandments. In other words, Jesus is saying, follow me, and that is how you will experience God. This is what he means when he says, I am the true living way. Now, the other Judas expresses his confusion, asking how Jesus will manifest himself to the disciples, but not to the rest of the world. In other words, is there some secret coming, some secret thing that only the disciples are going to be a part of, and no one else will see it? 
Again, Judas is interpreting Jesus' words in a physical sense. Jesus is not claiming that he's going to manifest himself physically, but in a spiritual sense. According to Jesus, he and God the Father dwell with whoever follows their teaching and continues in his creative work in this world. Remember that for John, Jesus is the word of God. That is God's creative wisdom, which breaks into our world. The spirit of truth will guide the disciples and help them to fulfill this commission. That is the commission of keeping Jesus's word, God's creative wisdom, which breaks through and changes the world for the better. Finally, Jesus tells his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give it to you. In other words, Jesus is peace. His commandments are peace. If the disciples follow him, they will have peace. If they imitate his way, his commandments, the way they've seen him live, they will have peace. And Jesus is giving that to them. He's leaving that with them. They're fretting about what are they going to do? He's saying, no, I've already showed you the way. I've already showed you what to do. I've already showed you how to find peace. In other words, peace actually is another way in the Jewish tradition of talking about being complete. Shalom, this idea of peace, is the idea of being wholly complete and well in every sense, physically, financially, relationally. Everything is right, just as it should be. And Jesus says, this is the gift I'm giving to you. I'm not taking it with me. I'm leaving it with you. And he says, the world cannot give you this. This is something otherworldly that you're receiving. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid because I am leaving this gift of peace with you. Thank you very much for joining me on episode 23 of the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you can do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.